So we're glad to see you this morning as we continue to study God's Word. And I just want to say as we start uh, this sermon this morning, I just want us to stop and recognize that we, as we continue to worship, are submitting ourselves and each of ourselves individually to the authority of God's Word. That it's God-breathed, that it's not man's words, but it's God's words. It comes from the heart of God literally. And so in that vein, I want to read a passage of Scripture to you from the book of Hosea related to what we're going to talk about today. And so it says this in Hosea 6, verses 4 through 6. What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? What am I going to do with you, Judah? That represents the northern and southern parts of Israel. Your love is like the morning mist and like the early dew that vanishes. This is why I've used the prophets to cut them down. I've killed them with the words of my mouth. My judgment strikes like lightning, for I desire faithful love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Why would I read that at the beginning of a message about the names of God? Because the Bible says here, it describes essentially Israel and Judah's love for God. And it's not what Israel thinks of their love for God, it's what God thinks of their love for him. And so this morning I could ask you, in the last 12 weeks or six weeks as we've gone through this series and studied 12 different names of God and looked at 12 different attributes of his character, and maybe you're hopefully knowing God in a little more personal way now, I could ask you, how is your love for God? Is your love for God changing? Is it increasing? But that really isn't the right question. The right question is, what does God say about your love for him? Is, does he think it's changing? Can he see a change in terms of your love for God? You remember several weeks ago, we looked at the name Elkanah, which means God is jealous. And that jealousy is always in the context of our supreme love for God. So if anything threatens our supreme love for God, that invokes jealousy on God's part for us because he truly loves us. And Jesus actually clarified the Shema, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, where it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Jesus went on to say in Matthew 22, this is the most important, the greatest commandment. In other words, what Jesus was saying is, this is what God wants from you and me most, is our love. And he will never be satisfied with anything short of that. And the way he describes Israel's love for him in the book of Hosea, which I would encourage you to read sometime if you're not familiar with this book, is he describes it as morning dew. You guys all know if you go out in your yard in the morning and it's before like 11 o'clock in the morning, you're going to get your feet wet. But you know if you go back after lunch at like 1 o'clock, you probably won't. The the point he's making is is that dew, that early mist, it vanishes. It doesn't stay. It's not consistent. It's here and then it's gone. That's exactly the way that God describes Israel's love for him. And then he says this. He says, I desire faithful love and not a sacrifice. And I desire the knowledge of God and not burnt offerings. Now, they did bring burnt offerings, but what God was saying is, you're missing the point. You don't love me anymore. You're just going through the motions and doing all these things. And so my question for us this morning is, is your love, would God say that your love for him through these last six weeks as you've gotten to know him better, would he say that's increasing in your life? Is it changing or is it more, would it be easy to describe it more like Hosea describes Israel's love here, that it's unfaithful, that it's fickle, that it's here and then it's gone, that it shows up and then it vanishes, that when we're in this room together, I love to sing praises to God and I love God, but when I go out here and live my life among other people, it kind of vanishes. Is it obvious to people who hang around me that I love God? The question before us really this morning is, what does God say about our love for him? 
So we've been looking at the names of God to get to know him better. And that's a very appropriate thing to do. But I want to remind you of something I said one of the very first weeks. It was a quote from Charles Spurgeon that said, how often do we actually go out and, and meditate on these concepts? A man emailed me from our church this week and said that he showed me kind of what he's been working through as he goes through his quiet time each day. He takes the names of God and, and several others that we haven't even discussed yet, and he goes through them every day as a part of his meditation before God. And meditating, thinking, stopping and meditating on the truths of God and who he is, it's very, very important for us. Spurgeon said it this way, it's often a matter of arguing ourselves out of moods of doubt and unbelief into a clear apprehension of God's grace and power. And I think that's so true. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't done that yet, to take some time every day to just steal your heart before the Lord. Go find some place you can be by yourself with the Lord and take these ideas about who God is and let them sort of dawn on you. Let them become a part of your thinking, of your heart, because God has gone to a lot of trouble to show us what he's like. He very much wants us to know him because he links the knowledge of God with loving God. And that is appropriate because when you know God and you know how incredibly amazing he is and yet how personal he is, how can you not be drawn into a closer love relationship with him? So I want you to check that in your own life because if you're not increasing in your faithful love for him, you're missing the point of all this. It's not just knowledge. It's not just to be able to say you know a bunch of names of God. That's kind of pointless, honestly. But are you being drawn into a closer walk and a closer intimate relationship with him? So this morning, I want, to, I want to just help us discover two more names of God. And the first name this morning we're going to look at is the name Adonai. That may be familiar to you. You may have heard that in Christian lingo or in songs that we sing. Adonai simply means Lord, Master, Owner. Jesus is Lord. We talk about Jesus being Lord. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. But in this, in this particular context, the name Adonai literally means Master or Lord. And it's it's a common name. It's used 443 times in the Old Testament. So it's a very common name. Oftentimes, uh, it'll be used with a compound Yahweh. So it'll be Yahweh Adonai or sometimes Adonai Yahweh. And in your English translations, it'll be translated Lord God. And sometimes it's even used with the name for God Elohim, one of the names that we looked at from the very beginning. So they're kind of intermixed, but we know that they have unique meanings and, and particular meanings. And so so where's the first place we see that? Well, it's actually found in Genesis chapter 15. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that may be familiar to you because it's, it's part of Abram's story. You know, several places so far that we've already looked at the names of God have been found in the book of Genesis because the book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. And so God, even at the very beginning, not only created the heavens and the earth, but he's revealing himself. He's communicating. He's intentionally sharing with us and revealing himself as to who he is. So there's this situation at the very end, you'll remember of Genesis 14, Abram's gone out and he's defeated all these evil kings and he comes back to help restore Sodom and Gomorrah and God gives him the victory and then God reveals himself in the end of Genesis 14 as El Elyon, the most high God. And so now in chapter 15, we see, and you kind of have to go back and get the context because really in Genesis 12, God sets Abram apart and he says, I want you to leave your father, your father's land where you live here, and Abram's not a young guy. He's a middle-aged guy at this point. I want you to leave, and I want you to go to a place I'm going to show you. Now, that's, that takes a lot of faith. Where, where, where are we going, God? Well, just, just trust me. Just follow me. Um, I'll tell you when you get there kind of thing, you know? You ever do that with your kids? Yeah, just trust me. We're going. Ten more minutes. Ten more minutes. We'll be there, right? So Abram in chapter 12, God calls him out. And the amazing thing is Abram actually does it. He leaves everything that's familiar to him. 
He leaves his father, which is essentially saying he's leaving his inheritance. He's leaving the land that his family owns. He's leaving everything, and he's following God. He's just branching out and following God. So in Genesis 15, this is what it says in verses 1 through 6. After these events, the events that I just told you about him going out and conquering these evil kings, the word of the Lord, which is Yahweh here, came to Abraham in a vision, or Abram. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, and it's the word Yahweh, it's the name Yahweh Adonai or Adonai, what can you give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord Yahweh came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. And then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. And the Bible says, Abram believed the Lord, Yahweh, and he credited to him as righteousness. So here in in verse 2, the first time that we see the name Adonai mentioned in the Bible. And it's this situation where God's promised Abram this amazing thing that you're going to be, you know, you're going to be a part of a great nation, but he has no children. And he's middle-aged. And so he comes to the Lord. And he actually does a great thing. He says to the Lord, what can you give me? What can you do to help me? Essentially is what he's saying. (laughs) He was saying, I need your help. It's basically a a prayer petition. What can you do for me? How can you help me? And because he's saying, look, right now, one of my slaves, one of my servants is going to end up being my heir. And he's not even related to me. And the Lord says, oh, no, no. And so the Lord does give him something. He gives him a promise. And if God gives you a promise, if he makes you a promise, you can count on it. It is certain to come to pass because no one can thwart God's promises. So he gives uh, Abram this amazing thing. He gives him a promise. He takes him outside and he says, look, you're going <clears> to, <throat> he says, I want you to look and count the stars if you're able. You're going to have that many offspring. And so essentially Abram, who knows Yahweh, is self-existent, personal, and present, that describes his character. He calls him his Lord, which really describes his role in Abram's life. Think about it. Abram has left everything and followed Yahweh. So he has demonstrated that he completely trusts Yahweh. I mean, can you imagine if somebody, God just said, do you want you to leave Longview? Leave everything here? Just take your family and go. Where are we going, Lord? Tell you when you get there. How long is it going to take? I'll tell you when you get there. (laughs) You know, just trust me. Right? Would you do that? That's exactly what Abram had done in this situation. He's going to an unknown place with an unknown timeline. And uh, the interesting thing is he totally is Abraham's Lord. He describes him as his Lord because that's exactly what he is. He is completely subjected himself to Yahweh. Yahweh is his Lord and master in his life. He lives that out perfectly because that's exactly the way he's living his life. So Genesis 15 really is about two issues, this this particular passage. It's about leadership and it's about trust. Leadership and trust. The question really for Abram is, Abram, who's leading your life? Well, Abram doesn't even know where he's going. He's not even sure when he'll get there. He's He's not sure how long it'll take him to get there. And yet he's uprooted his entire family and taken them just because he trusts Yahweh as his leader, as his Lord. 
as his master. So that's who Abram's following. That's who Abram's listening to. That's who Abram is submitting himself to. And so for us as believers in Jesus today, <coughs> excuse me, that's really the question. Who are we trusting to lead our lives? Many of us, we know we come to Jesus Christ. We put our faith in him to save us. We become Christians. We become born again. And so it takes trust to get to that place. But then after that, it seems like many Christians today, at least in the Western part of the world, are hesitant to really trust Jesus to have full control of their lives. Where they go, when they move, what they buy, where they live, all those kind of things. That seems a little bit like a foreign idea. We all get that that's what it's supposed to be. Jesus is supposed to be the Lord of our lives when we put our trust in him. But the reality is there's a separation there. Many people who put their trust in Jesus as Savior are hesitant to put the same trust in him to be their leader, who has full say over what they do, full control of their lives personally. And yet that's exactly what Abram demonstrated here. A lot of people would be hesitant to give anyone control of their lives. They would think that was almost unhealthy or maybe even abusive, but not when you're talking about a perfect leader. Not when you're talking about someone who never has a bad motive, who never takes advantage of the people that follow him, who always has their best interest at heart, but also has the interest of other people at heart. And so what that means is oftentimes when we discuss this idea of lordship, we talk about obedience. And I think obedience is important, but I think the bigger issue is trust. I think the bigger issue is, do you really trust that if you turn your life over to Jesus as your leader, as your Lord, you'd be okay. You think about that ever? Does that ever cross your mind? Because I think that's something we struggle with sometimes. I think the reason we struggle with that is we're afraid that if we trust Jesus to be our leader, truly put our lives in his hands and trust him daily, we're afraid he might ask us to do something kind of crazy, something a little bit uncomfortable. And rest assured, he will. Count the cost. He will absolutely ask you to do something that's out of your comfort zone. So we go, well, I'm not doing it. I don't want to do that. I'll just live this subpar Christianity that says Jesus is my Savior, but I'm pretty much the Lord. I'm pretty much making the decisions. I'm deciding all the rest of the stuff. And if he presents me with an option that I like, I might take it. Or if I get really convicted sometime, I might dip into the Lordship idea a little bit. But most of the time, I'm going to lead my life the way that I want to. So let me give you a couple of modern-day examples of people that embrace the same idea that Abram embraced, this idea that he's the Adonai, he's the Lord. You guys may remember, you may know John and Brittany Burgess. They used to be a part of our church here. They used to live in Longview, had jobs here, raised their three daughters here, and they had a normal life just like most of us do. And then one day, the Lord of their life said, hey, I want you guys to go to Budapest, Hungary, and live for a while. What? Yeah. I want you to move your family to Budapest. There's an opening over there at the Christian International School, and I think you guys would be a perfect fit to go teach that. I want you to move. To Budapest? <laughs> we don't even speak the language. How are we going to do that? I mean, what are we going to do? How, how's that even going to work, right? That's not what John and Brittany did. They didn't throw any of those reservations up. They just said, you're the Lord. You're the leader. So wherever you say, we sing it all the time, wherever you lead, I'll go. So they went. And they've been over there for a couple of years now. They're actually going to be home later this summer and stay in our mission house. And so hopefully we'll get a chance to see them. They're just one example of thousands of people that we know that have done something like that. Or think about it this way, a little more closer to home. Maybe six years ago when we started the Marshall campus and 
you'll remember that we asked you guys to pray about would you be available and willing, it was the Lord wants you to go to Marshall, 30 minutes from here, and just be a part of the group that goes over there and helps get that campus started. And, and there were people in our church who felt like the Lord led them to say, yes, yeah, we'll go over there. We'd rather be here. We like the worship over here. We like the atmosphere over here. We like our friends over here. We may not see them as much if we're over there, but Jesus is the Lord. He's our Adonai. So if he tells us to go to Marshall and meet in a convention center for an undisclosed amount of time, we don't know if we'll ever have a building. We do have a building now, but didn't know that going in. Didn't know if it would work. Didn't know if people would come. Didn't know any of that. Just trust the Lord. And that's exactly how our Marshall campus started six years ago. So I'm sure though I'm not the senior pastor, I'm sure in the future, God will lead us to do something like that again, probably. And the question really comes down to, now he doesn't want all of us to go do that. He knows who should do what. He's the leader. What we have to be is trusting. And if we're trusting him and depending on him, he will lead us. We can't can't approach him and say, well, that's too scary or I don't want to do that. Because if you put self-imposed limitations on his lordship, he's not really your lord. You are. He's not the leader. You are in that situation. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 7. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. They'll call him by the right name. They'll give him the right title. Didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. If Jesus is your Lord and master, then he's your leader. He's the one you're listening to and listening for not just every once in a while, but every day. I had an amazing experience when I was a pretty new Christian, a couple of years into my Christianity. I grew up over in Tyler, and I'd heard that this this famous preacher was going to be in town. It was a Friday night, church downtown that I didn't go to. So me and some friends planned to go. We were in this sanctuary that sat about 700 people, and they were probably like like you guys, kind of spread out, probably 300 people in the room. And we got in there, and I had heard so much about this guy, but I'd never heard him before. His name was Vance Havner. Maybe you've heard of him. He was an amazing preacher. He was an evangelist that traveled around the Southern Baptist churches and shared the gospel and preached. And anyway, just a plain spoken guy, but so powerful. And so we get there and I'm sitting third, fourth row back. And during the whole worship thing, back in those days, you'll remember the preachers used to sit on the platform in the big throne chairs, you know. And so he's sitting in this chair and he's an older guy. He's probably 80 years old at this point. The chair is just swallowing him up. I mean, he doesn't move the entire time that we're singing. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm looking to go, is he breathing? I mean, he is barely moving. He doesn't move the entire song service. Okay, song service is over. He steps up to the pulpit and boom. <laughs> I mean, it was powerful. He preached on the lordship of Jesus Christ. And he went through and basically talked about all the places Jesus talked about, the requirements to follow him and be a follower of his, to submit to his lordship. But then at the end of that service, he did this. He said, we're not going to have any music. Tonight is the point of decision for you. Jesus is either going to be your Lord and master of everything every day, or you're going to make a decision to walk out of here and keep being lukewarm. And he said, I'm going to give you a chance to stand to your feet tonight and proclaim to the Lord and everyone in this room who witnesses this, that Jesus is your Lord. So just stand to your feet, say your first name, and follow it by saying Jesus is Lord. And it was like crickets. And this guy pops up over here, stands up. My name's so-and-so. Jesus is my Lord. He said, just stay standing. Somebody over here pops up. And then it just keeps happening. And I'm sitting there thinking, what am I going to do? 
Because I know I've been wrestling with some things in my life related to lordship as a new Christian. One of those things was sharing my faith. God kept giving me opportunities and I kept going, no, 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 I don't want to do that. That's too scary. I can't do that. I don't even know what to say. And he just kept, come on, come on, follow me, trust me. And so that was a moment of decision for me. And I finally stood up and said, my name is Paul and Jesus is my Lord. And there was like this peace and fear at the same time that came over me because I knew I was going to have to walk out of there and live that. And it was a moment of decision for me. And so from then, sort of from then on, I'm not saying I've done that perfectly, but from then on, it was like, no, I made that decision. And I wonder for us, we're not going to do that this morning, but I wonder for us, if you need a moment of decision like that in your life, where you say, from here on, Jesus is going to be the Lord and master. Like Abram, he's going to be the person that I trust, not just for the big stuff, <laughs> my salvation, where I should go to college, what kind of job I should get, who I should marry, all that stuff. No, I'm going to trust him for even the little stuff, who I should talk to today, where I should go, who should I interact with, who I should share the gospel with, all those kind of things. Because if he's your Lord, he's the leader of your life. So keep that thought in mind. We're going to come back to that in just a minute because it's amazing how these names go together. The second name we're going to talk about quickly this morning is this. It's Yahweh Zidkenu. I know that's a fun one, right? Zidkenu. It's not how it's spelled, but that's how it's pronounced, I think. And what it means is the Lord is our righteousness. And where is that found in the Bible? Well, it's found in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 and 6. It says this. It's a prophecy about the end times. And it says, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord Yahweh's declaration. The days are coming when I will raise up a righteous, there's the word, righteous branch for David. In other words, out of the line of David. And he will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So it's a prophecy about the kingdom that Jesus will set back up when, when Israel is restored one day in the future. But he reveals himself in this situation as the name, the Lord is our righteousness. And so I think righteousness is one of those words that we throw around in church, like holiness or other words that we kind of go, I kind of know what it means, but I'm not really sure. It just sounds like a church word. We sang about it. If you didn't notice, I mean, Tim did a great job picking these songs out today. We sang about it multiple times this morning. And the Bible refers to God's righteousness a lot, but I think it's a word that we maybe don't understand. So here's a way to think of God's righteousness. God is always right. Always. His thoughts, his motives, his actions, his reactions, he is always right. No exception. Always, absolutely every time right. We, on the other hand, are not always right. My reactions, my thoughts, my motives are not always right. So the Bible says I'm unrighteous and you're unrighteous in my natural state. God's righteous, completely holy and righteous, and I'm completely unrighteous, right? The Bible says there's no one righteous, no, not one. So all of us are in the same boat when it comes to that. So God is the standard, perfectly right every time, every decision, action, thought, motive, every single time. And the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God because he's the standard of the glory of God. He's right every time. I can't get there. You can't either. So in my position before God, my position before God is one of condemnation outside of Jesus Christ because I could never be right. I can never completely be right. I'm always going to fall, always going to fail. So my position and your position outside of Jesus Christ is fatal. And my attempt to change that and your attempt to change that is futile. You can't do anything about it. I can't do anything about that. The good news is in the equation, 
of righteous and unrighteous, the only one who can make this right (laughs) is the one who's righteous. And if you want to think of righteousness another way, think of it this way, rightness. The God who's always right, he's always in a right relationship with himself, with with the Trinity, and I am, outside of Jesus Christ, never able to achieve a right relationship with him because I can't do anything about my unrighteousness. I can't cover it. I can't pay for it enough. There's no way I can remedy that problem in my life and neither can you. So what's the solution? The righteous in the equation, God had to do something for the unrighteous, us. And so here's what he did. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be our righteousness, the Bible says. In other words, he's willing to trade, he was willing to trade his righteousness for my sinfulness so that I could be righteous and right with God. Now, here, this is really important, and a lot of Christians don't understand this, that when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, it changed forever my position with God. I went from being guilty to being forgiven. I went from being condemned to being pardoned. I went from being a slave to being free. I went from being a stranger to being a son. My position changed. Think of this way. Some of you understand adoption. Some of you have been adopted. My two sisters were adopted. My sisters, when they came into my family, were not, did not have my parents' last name. Their last name was not Coleman. I don't know what their last name was. But when my parents adopted them, until my parents adopted them, they were not their children. They were not their daughters. But once they legally adopted them, they changed my sister's position from then on. From then on, their last name was Coleman. From then on, they were part of our family. They became daughters of my mom and dad. So God does a similar thing. When you come to him through faith in Jesus Christ, he changes your position forever. And I said a second ago, I don't think Christians understand this because they'll say, what if somebody dies while they're sinning? They still go to heaven? What if they die with some unconfessed sin in their life? They still go to heaven? What's the answer? Yes, because when they gave their life to Jesus Christ, they became children of God. They became forgiven of all their sin. Their position eternally changed. And nothing, not even themselves, not even their sinfulness, can change their position before God once they've been made right with God. You go, wait a minute, now that's not the way people live. (laughs) Okay, hang on. That's your position before God. And that's so important. Paul described it this way. He used the phrase in Christ 130 times in his 13 letters. And again, I think Christians don't totally understand it. But when you got saved, when you said yes to Jesus Christ, he puts you in Christ which means you got to benefit from the righteousness of Christ. The Lord is our righteousness. That's how you say it. You got to benefit from the righteousness of Christ. And the cool thing, y'all, is that that was always his plan. He knew that none of us were ever going to be able to be righteous on our own. He gave us the law to show us that we could never get it right every time. So we would have to come to him and put our trust in him, and he would give us Christ's righteousness. And so now I can stand before God righteous. You go, you're not righteous. I know you. (laughs) I'm not right all the time. That's exactly right. But in my position, I will forever be righteous because of Jesus Christ. I will forever be right with God because of Jesus Christ. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will too. And you can't even mess that up. Praise the Lord for that, right? So you go, well, now wait a minute. I know people who are believers who don't live like believers. We just talked about that. People who have Jesus as their Savior, but they don't trust him as their Lord. Here's the difference. Your position can never change once you give your life to Jesus Christ, but your condition changes because it's conditional. What do you mean? 
Well, what's the current status of your relationship with God right now? Those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, what's, what's your, the condition of your relationship? You're either close to God or you're distant from God. You're either trusting God or you're not trusting God. There are a lot of variables. We talk about believers in Jesus Christ who fall away, who become an old biblical word, backslidden. They slide away. They drift. The Bible says we can drift away from God. Not in your position, but in your condition, yes. So I remember the first church I served at in ministry. Well, yeah, first church was at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis. And the, they used a phrase, the people used a phrase there about particularly kids, because I worked in youth ministry, who weren't right with the Lord. And they would say, oh, they're just away from the Lord. They're just away from the Lord. And I said, well, are they Christians? Yeah, I believe they put their faith in Jesus, but they're just away from the Lord. Well, it's kind of like the prodigal son. Prodigal son still had the same father. His position didn't change, but his condition did, certainly. So we know believers who don't live it. Their condition may be this. They may be way away from God, but their position's the same. They're still a child of God. They can't undo that. That's the beautiful thing about salvation, but your condition. So, so how do these two names go together? Well, this is what I'll share you. Let me share a couple of verses with you. First, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this. He made the one who did not know sin, talking about Jesus, to be sin for us, that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And then Paul said it this way in Philippians. And be found in him, Christ, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. So your position doesn't change, your condition does. So here's the question this morning. How is your condition? There's an old song. Just stopped in to see what condition my condition was in, right? How is your condition this morning? Go back to the beginning. Go back to the idea of Adonai. If Jesus is the Lord of your life, then your condition is trusting. And that makes sense because that's the way you start a relationship with God. You start by putting your trust in Jesus Christ. And when you do that, he grants you righteousness. Not your righteousness, his righteousness. He does what, what only he could do for you. And so on the podcast this week, we'll talk more about this, but it has to do with the word justification. We'll talk more about that. I'm not gonna take the time to do it this morning. But it's interesting because a lot of people misunderstand that. So tune in if you wanna see more about that. But here's the question this morning. If you start your relationship with God by trust, by faith, Paul, Paul said it this way in Romans 10, 10, one believes with the heart resulting in righteousness. One confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. It's about your trust. It's about your belief. So if you believe Jesus is the savior of the world and you decide that that's true because it is, and you want that salvation, you want to be made right with God, in a, be in a righteous relationship with him, then you put your faith in him. You do what the next couple of verses in Romans 10 says, you call upon the name of the Lord. And when you call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible makes you a promise that if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. So you can count on that. You can take that to the bank. That will happen because God's gonna always keep his promises. So when that happens, your position changes before God. You become all those things I mentioned a second ago. You become forgiven. You get a right relationship with God. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're free from it. All these wonderful things. You become his child. He adopts you into his family. Your position changes. The question really before you today, if you've never done that, is that's the place for you. The second question is this. Once you've done that, why stop trusting? Once you've done that, why decide that you're going to have this condition where you walk at a distance from God, where you don't really trust him every day? It's the most exhilarating thing you can do is trust him with your daily life because he will mix it up <laughs> a little bit. 
And that's okay. Because you'll find that in that situation, you'll have to depend on him. I, we just say it. I need him. Lord, I need you. I need you. Do you really? Well, you know you need him for salvation, but do you need him every day? Yes, if you're going to let him be your Lord, if you're going to submit to him as the leader of your life and trust him, you're going to have to lean on him, listen for him, be tuned into him. And so the question this morning, and it kind of goes back to what the Bible said about Abram, even in Genesis 15, where it says in Genesis 15, 6, we read it, Abram believed God. And what happened? It was credited to him as righteousness. He was made in a right relationship with God because of his faith. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And those of you who are watching online, if, if you've never taken the step of faith, this is for you. And it's for anyone in the room who's never said to Jesus Christ, please save me. I, I want you to be my savior. I'm going to give you a chance to do that this morning, to actually call upon the name of the Lord for salvation and to change your position before God eternally in a secure relationship from now on with him. And that is a wonderful promise that he gives you. So if that's you this morning and you want to receive Christ, I'm just going to lead you in a word of prayer. So you just pray this after me. There's no magic words, but it's just an expression of your faith to say, I do trust in you. So just say this to the Lord. Dear Jesus, I trust you. And I pray, Lord, that you'll take all my sin away. I ask you to forgive me. I'm sorry. I don't want my sin. I know I'm unrighteous. But I want to be righteous before you. I want to be right with you. So I put my faith in Jesus right now. And I thank you this morning for saving me right now. Now help me do the second thing, Father. Help me to trust you every day as my Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Now, you can look at me. If you prayed that prayer, the Bible says that the angels in heaven above rejoice. And, and we want to rejoice with you in just a second too. But before we do that, there's a second thing I want to talk about real quick this morning. And that's that first idea that I talked about a second ago which is this, has there ever been in that moment or, or has there been that moment recently in your life where you had a moment of decision to say, Jesus, you are the leader of my life. You are my Lord, you are my master. I'm not, you are. And maybe your condition has been that you've been out here instead of close, you've been out away from the Lord, drifting away from him because you've been trying to lead your life. It doesn't work very well, really, but a lot of people do it. So I wonder this morning if you would have the boldness in just a minute to stand to your feet and just by standing say, Jesus is Lord of my life right now. So wherever you are in the room, just stand to your feet. If you're not to say anything, but if you're ready just to declare that Jesus is the Lord of your life going forward from here on. And don't do it because everybody else is doing it, okay? God, I thank you for the boldness to stand for you. Lord, we need encouragement from each other. We need we need the church, and we thank you for creating it for us to be able to be encouraged, to not let sin deceive us where we drift away from you, Lord, but to, to be on our guard, to help each other, to love each other. So thank you, God, for what you're going to do through your people's lives that are standing right now, both here and at home this morning. Just in the next few days, how you're going to use us as your body in this community. And we pray you would. Now, God, we want to celebrate that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.